Father in heaven, thank you so much, Lord, for the wonderful opportunities to speak to your people. I thank you for this privilege, Father, for it is a privilege. But Lord, I also know that I have no power in and of myself to even articulate that which is needed most. Therefore, I commit myself into your hands, and I pray that you'll take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. I pray that you'll speak to my mind and speak through my mouth that it might minister to the heart needs of my brothers and my sisters. I pray that you'll give them ears to hear, and that as a result of our time together in the meditation of your word, we will come out of this place better than when we came in. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have had the privilege over the past few years to go to different institutes. I've been to several institutes uh, within the United States of America, and then I've had the privilege to go abroad. Many of these institutes were either our, uh, you know, our schools where they train gospel workers. That can be things like an Amazing Facts or you know, there's a wonderful school, um, you know, like Wachita Hills Academy and College and, and many, many others. You know, and then we have places that are medical missionary training institutes like Uchi Pines, like Wildwood, like Meat Ministry, and many, many others. Been overseas and got a chance to see some institutes over there. And I found that the same problems that we're having here, in many respects, you also see them happening abroad because America is typically where everybody loves to look and to copy. And one of the things I, I really notice is that there's a lot of similar weaknesses and similar challenges. And you get to a place that God has really transitioned my mind. And what has happened as of late is I find that when I rose up on December 19, 2016, when I rose up from that surgical table and God spared my life and, and restored me, etc., I was really more inquiring now, Lord, what do you want? Like, really, what do you want? And I love going to young people because there's a lot of buzzwords in Adventism. You know, we got words like present truth. You know, when you say present truth, you know, that can mean something completely different to me than it is to you. So these become buzzwords that we use a lot that I'm discovering we really don't know what we're talking about a lot of times. Then on top of that, there's another real major buzz term that's used in Adventism. It's called finish the work. And uh, that, that, that's a big one, finish the work. You know, we got to do what's called finish the work. And, you know, and, and, I, and I like asking questions. And some of the questions that I ask both youth and adults is, what do you mean by finish the work? Or what work is it that needs to be finished? And uh, what do we need to do to, to get Jesus to come back here and take us out of this planet? And a lot of times we say we need more outpost centers, especially the younger generation. You hear that a lot. We need more outpost centers. We need, we need blueprint schools. We need this. We need that. And I'm thinking to myself, we had blueprint schools. We had outpost centers. We had a lot of those things before. When I was at the mountain and mountain mission working with Tacoa Missions, uh, Elder Sandoval mentioned that I was working with Tacoa Missions. I used to. I'm not there anymore. But there was a time that I was part of Tacoa Missions, and we were over in Harrisville, uh, New Hampshire, and I remember being on Mountain Mission, and some of you who are of the older generation, you know about Mountain Mission, and the big old mansion that was on the property there, etc. And, you know, when I look at that ma mansion, it's, it's desolate. Ichabod, the glory has departed. And it's interesting because 
Tacoa Missions is not there anymore. It moved on to another location. And now there's a non-believing man who owns that very property and is using it more so for glory of self than glory for God. And we can trace back. I remember when I was walking through the mansion, and I mean, you got to walk carefully in that mansion because the floors are all brittle and everything. You could literally fall through the floor. And so we would walk on the beams and what have you, and you would go into a room. And when you would go in the room, there would be these boxes filled with books. And we would go in those boxes and open them up, and there would be these old books. And one of them was a directory. Talk about weeping. When I opened up this directory, you know what it was? It was a directory of all of the outpost centers in the United States. It was a directory that went as far back as probably about 1940, something like that, 1940, 1950. And when you look at how many outpost centers we had, how many hygienic restaurants, when you look at all of these things that we had, I wonder how is it that heaven holds back tears? Because when you count it today, you can almost count it on one hand. And so in my mind, I'm like, Father, we've had outpost centers. You go to where these places were, and it's quote unquote Gentiles that own it now. Non-believers, heathens, doing whatever they want, when they want, how they want. The remainder of these schools, you go into them, and you constantly see a gross level of apostasy. It's like a microcosm of places where you can really find what God is looking for. When I saw this, this is what began to cause me to say, Father, what do you want? What is it then that you really want? Because if, it was just if the work could simply be finished by establishing more outpost centers, well, it should have been finished a long time ago. Some of us should have never been born. And I believe I know what God wants. Go to the book of Proverbs 23. It's spelled out in very, very clear language. Proverbs, the 23rd chapter. In Proverbs, the 23rd chapter, I want you to see what the Bible says. And, and I think that this is the most important thing. Yes, it is true. God wants more schools, sanitariums. Various outpost centers, yes, the Lord could certainly benefit from having more of those. Some people are now, you know, doing it from their homes. They're making little home sanitariums, and they're doing home schools and home this and home that, and all that's fine. But the question is, have we really met what God wants? And you know what God wants? It's spelled out very clearly in Proverbs 23. The Bible says in Proverbs, the 23rd chapter, consider verse 26. And the Bible says, my son, what does God want? Give me thine heart. And let your eyes observe my ways. You see, until God has your heart, you will corrupt the outpost center. Until God has our heart, we will corrupt the school. Until God has our heart, my brothers and sisters, we will corrupt the sanitarium work. We heard the good side about Kellogg, but there's a bad side, isn't there? And unfortunately, that bad side testifies to what can happen to the heart and how much havoc can take place in the movement when God does not have the reins of the heart. And so when I begin to look at my own life, I'm very, very carefully asking God, what is it about my heart you don't have? That's like, like the mass assessment for Dwayne Lemon. I mean, if, 
if anybody knows me, and there's one person in here that does very well, and that's my bride from my side. And my wife will tell you that that is the theme of my thought processes. I'm just like, does the Lord really have our heart? You know, my children right now are in Kentucky. We talk to them every evening, and they tell us about how the Lord is blessed as they went knocking on doors, going in businesses, and providing truth-filled literature. And they talk about how wonderful some of the other missionaries that they're shadowing and how they're getting the books out there, etc. And when it's all said and done, I'm on the phone. I'm like, praise the Lord. It's a blessing. Dad, we went. We knocked on the door. The person slammed the door in our face. We moved on to the next person, and we just started going. And, and, and you know, my, my children are telling these stories, and I'm just like, man, amen. But then when it's all said and done, in my mind, I'm saying, what did you behold about Jesus in these experiences today? Because it's only by beholding him that we can become changed and have his heart. You see, it is possible to do, and I'm not here to knock down the importance of working. It is imperative that we work. But the question is this, what kind of work are you doing? Where's your heart in the work? These are questions that we have to start asking ourselves. It is good to see a husband and wife sitting next to each other, but did you know that there are sometimes people who could sit next to each other who borderline hate each other? They have the right title, they have the right image, but their hearts are not in the right position. That can happen in a marriage, that can happen in a church, and that can happen in a ministry. God will not be satisfied until he has your heart. I don't care how many people you touch. I don't care how many lives you touch all throughout your community. We will simply fulfill 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27, when the apostle Paul says that though I preach to others, I myself may end up a castaway. And that is not what God wants. And so when we begin looking at the great work that the Lord wants us to do, it is imperative that we have our hearts in the right place as we do his work, for that is the best way to do his work. When Brother McNulty was teaching on the third angel's message, what did we learn the third angel's message really is in verity? What is it? Well, righteousness by faith, we use that term, but what's, what is the specific term that's used? Justification. justification. Isn't that right? Evangelism 190, justification by faith in verity. That's the third angel's message. Is that correct? All right, now watch this. Because of this fact, justification by faith is the third angel's message. Then what that tells me is, is that if we are truly gospel medical missionary evangelists bringing the third angel's message to the world, we should be masters at understanding justification by faith. Because the last thing you want to be is a messenger without a message. Would you agree with that? That's the worst thing we want to do is become a messenger when we really don't have a message. So we should really understand that. Now watch this. Go to the book of Colossians 2. The apostle Paul, when he was dealing with the Judaizers who were going in the church of Colossae and sweeping the people with all sorts of rules, regulations, genealogies, etc., that was confusing the camp. Paul had to come in and he had to set some things straight with the brethren in the church of Colossae. And I want you to see something that he said that's very, very important. And I want you to think about this because we're going to make a point right here that's, that's just absolutely imperative. Colossians. We're going to chapter 2. And when you get there, you let me know by saying amen. amen. In Colossians, the second chapter, Paul makes some very, very profound points. And he says this in verse 6, and I like this verse. He says, as ye have therefore what? Received Christ Jesus the Lord, so do what? 
Walk ye in him. However we received Christ is how we are to walk in Christ. You understand that? So if I receive Christ right, I can better know how to walk right with him. But if I've received Christ wrong, then I'm not going to know how to walk, walk right with him. And it is possible that in my evangelistic work, I might win people to reflect more of me than Jesus. This is reality. This is why we're in the crisis that we're in. This is why that we have to be reminded consistently, camp meeting after camp meeting, we need to get to work, we need to surrender our hearts, we need to do this, we need to do that. These messages have come to us before, I would imagine. There's very few people more than likely in this room that can say, wow, this is the first time I heard this in my life. More than likely, these are things that we have heard, and if we are even minutely studious, we've read. There's some churches today that call me, and they say, come preach. I say, I'm not coming back anymore. They say, why? I said, because you heard the message. You had everybody come through already. You had every present truth preacher and teacher of righteousness in North America come to your church, and now you want us to come back to do what? How about you take what you already heard and get to work with it? In other words, I'm not here to repeat the celebrity circle in Adventism because there's a wicked celebrity circle in Adventism. We have turned this thing into absolute entertainment, and we are getting the present truth preachers to come in because it draws crowds, brings in big offerings, etc. And people are coming together, and we're rehashing the same truths that we have said over and over and over again. And the reason why it has to be said over and over again is because we're building more buildings. We're going into more territories. We're conjuring up new ideas of evangelism, but God is weeping because he's saying, I still don't have their hearts. And that's the number one thing he wants. Until he gets that, nothing else matters. We will build, we will construct, and all that's going to happen is we're going to look carefully at the blueprint, and we're going to see we built and constructed wrong and got to tear it down and start all over again. And you know how the human mind works. Sometimes you invest so much in something that when you discover from inspiration, we did it wrong, we get afraid. And we start saying we can't do that. And that is when God will allow some Battle Creek Part 2s to take place. And a fire is going to get started that no man will put out, for God himself started it. God is trying to say to each and every one of us, my brothers and sisters, it's high time that we get away from all this sermonizing. I mean, we really got to get away from this. We have to get to a place that we take heed to what we have heard and what we have learned, and we start putting that thing into serious, practical understanding. This is what the Lord wants. He wants your heart. And that's why if we're going to do faithful gospel medical missionary work, then we have to imitate the great gospel medical missionary. And Jesus had his heart in the right place. And the question is, where's your heart? Where's my heart? Once God has our heart, my brothers and sisters, he will make money appear out of nowhere. Because now he says, I know I can trust you with it. But if we get money and we say, let's build bigger barns, Let's go ahead and do what we think is right rather than what God has laid out very clear in his blueprint. If we do that, God says, I can't trust him yet. And it frustrates the blessings. You don't think he wants to turn your homes into a little heaven on earth? 
Your home does not have to be hell on earth. The only reason it's hell on earth is because we are frustrating God's spirit and we're not letting him have dominion over our minds. This is the issue. And so I made it, you know, there's a lot of things that's going to change as far as how I do ministry. But, you know, I'm, 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 I'm weaning off some things because I'm really going back to God's words and his blueprints very carefully. And I'm looking, saying, what is it that you really want, Lord? And he's opening up more and still more. And it is glorious. It's glorious for me and my home. And it's glorious for God's people who have ears to hear. How many of you are members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Can I see you raise your hand? All right. Now, do you know there is nowhere in the Bible where Jesus said, go make members? There's nowhere in the Bible where Jesus said, go make members. Okay? So the question that I asked you, it's really a a non-essential question. The question is not how many of you are members. The question is how many of you are this. You'll remember that when Jesus gave the commission, he said it very clearly. Go ye therefore and do what? Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That wonderful Greek word for teach is to disciple. In other words, the real question is not how many of you are members because that means nothing. You and I all know that you can be a member somewhere and not get any of the benefits of the membership. Gyms. You know what I'm saying? Sign up at a gym. I'm a member. But we never go there, so our bodies still look the same and we don't get the benefits. You understand that? So we understand membership means nothing. What means everything is, are you a disciple? That's the real question. So again, question, how many of us are disciples in the Seventh-day Adventist Church? All right. You get that now? You see that difference? Now, when we talk about disciple, I hope you don't mind. The Bible says prove all things. Is it all right if I test you? The Bible says this. John 8 and verse 31. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. If you do what? Continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. That means that we have to have a present experience growing in the word of God. We do not live off of yesterday's blessings. That means that you cannot say, I remember when I used to study the Bible real deep. I remember when I used to dig deep in the word. I remember when I used to get up every single morning and having deep meditation. I'm not talking about reading some simple one-page morning watch. I'm talking about really digging in the word. Jesus makes it very clear. If you're continuing in my word, he says, then are you my disciples indeed. It's not only that. It then goes on to say, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If ye have what? Love one to another. The question is, how can you love me if you're gossiping about me? That's not love, my brothers and sisters. If we have love one for another, that means we're kind to one another gentle towards one another, willing to sacrifice and lose that another may gain. The question is, do you have that kind of spirit towards each other? Because if you don't have that kind of spirit towards each other, my brothers and sisters, you can be disqualified for being a disciple. Oh, it's not just that. How about this one? John 15, 8. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. We're talking about lighting up the earth with God's glory. The only people who's going to light up the earth with God's glory are those who bear much fruit. 
And the question is, are you and I bearing much fruit as it relates to love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. And how are you doing with temperance? My brothers and sisters, if we're God's disciples, we should be bearing much fruit. How about this one? Luke 14 and verse 27. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What in the world does that mean? Go to Matthew 16. Notice what the Bible says. In Matthew 16, look at what the Bible says. Matthew, we're looking at the 16th chapter. And we're going to consider verse 24. Matthew 16 and verse 24. Let's talk about it. What does it mean, this idea of bearing the cross? It says in Matthew 16 and verse 24. If you're there, say amen. amen. The Bible says, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Do you do that? Am I? Listen, you know what some people do? That's why, that's why I love the Bible. I love the Bible. Because if I ask you this question, how many of you deny yourself? You know what we start doing? We start thinking back to dates. Oh, yeah, I remember when I denied myself on March 20th, that one Sabbath or whatever. And sometimes we lock ourselves into these dates and times of periods of what have you. Go to Luke 9. Watch how God crushes this. Luke 9. I'm not asking, have you denied yourself at some point in time in Earth's history? That was not my question. Look at what it says in Luke, the ninth chapter. Watch what the Bible says. Luke 9. And notice what the text says. Luke, the ninth chapter, and look at what it says in verse 23. Same principle of Matthew 16, 24. But look at how it comes out in Luke 9 and verse 23. It says, he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. How often? Daily. Daily. And follow me. That means if you was nice to your husband yesterday, guess what? You need to be nice to your husband today. If you was nice to your wife yesterday... Don't get caught up in your past experiences. Be nice to your wife today. You understand that? This is, this is literally what God is trying to show us. Because there's a whole lot of talk. And, and it's, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful. Somebody said, Brother Levin, be careful. They're going to call you an apostate. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. You can call me what you want. I don't care. Listen, people say, I, they're great. Anyhow, there are people who actually say things. They, they try to, they think they're the ones that can qualify what is and what is not present truth. You know, those who know the least know it the loudest. Let me repeat that. Those who know the least know it the loudest. They talk a lot about what they don't understand. I know for a fact that what I'm teaching is present truth. You know why? Because we have heard over and over and over again that doctrine and understanding alone will not get anybody into the most holy place by faith with Jesus and certainly will not get us into heaven. Volume 5 of the Testimonies to the Church, page 213. The prophet of God says there are many who teach the truth who will not receive the seal of God in their foreheads. She said this, watch this now, this is volume 5, page 213, under the chapter, the seal of God, which was spoken of this morning. She says... There are many who had the light of truth. They knew their master's will. Watch this third point. They understood every point of our faith. 
So these people were seriously doctrinally sound, but they don't get the seal of God. Can you imagine that? It says they understood every point of our faith, but they had not corresponding works. And then the next sentence is even more shocking. It says, these who were so familiar with prophecy should have understood that they should have taken command of their households. There's a connection between the home and the seal of God. You don't rule right in your home, you will get no seal no matter how many people you help outside your home and no matter how much you preach the truth as it is in Jesus. God is trying to make it plain, family. We are who we are, especially in our homes. That's why God's trying to get this thing right with us. You understand that? And so God is trying to help us understand if we are not willing to bear our cross, a daily lifestyle of denying of self. When God gives a command, we follow. When God gives an instruction, we obey. When God tells us how we are to deal with one another, we do it. It's only those who have this kind of mindset of Jesus. Those are the ones that God is going to be able to put that seal on them in the end. Now, how about this one? Go ye therefore and teach all nations, or in other words, make more disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, which means that we need to get to work. If we're truly disciples, then that means that we should be busy making more disciples. Got a question for you. How many of us are disciples? Do, do, you, see, do you see the hesitancy now? Do you see that hesitancy? Before, oh man, we were like, how many of you are members? Whoosh. How many of you are disciples? Whoosh. Now, we did a little qualifying. How many of us disciples? We understand it. In other words, there's more to think about family. In 2010, I went to a camp meeting. It was a camp meeting that was known to teach the present truth, as many of us understood it. Everything was about the Sunday law. And you know, and I remember that it was always Sunday law, Sunday law, Sunday law, Sunday law. The Sunday law is paper thin close. We gotta have victory over sin before the Sunday law, etc. And don't get me wrong, family, do we need to have victory over sin before the Sunday law? No doubt, absolutely. Should we make sure that we are in right standing with God? Absolutely. We're told very clearly in volume four, volume five of the testimonies, page 216, we're told none shall receive the seal of God until they overcome every besetment. So there's no question, I need that victory over sin. My biggest problem was that we didn't take enough time with the people to explain what victory over sin looked like, let alone how to get it. I mean, you can do two hours on a sermon talking about the nearness of the Sunday law and spend five minutes talking about victory over sin. That's not practical. The people need to know, how do I get victory over sin? How does it happen? How does that happen in my life? That's like a parent telling a child, behave yourself, behave yourself, behave yourself, behave yourself. That child sooner or later has a right to raise their hand and say, could you show me how? That's bad parenthood. You don't just tell somebody what to do. You walk them through how to do what you're telling them to do. 2010, I was at a camp meeting. The ministers did the best they could to tell everybody, victory over sin, definitely necessary, Sunday laws coming, etc. But the problem was this. Everybody came there from 2006. I heard that message. 2007, heard that message. 2008, heard that message. 2009, heard that message. 2010, and there were a lot of people. I mean, if you see people at a camp, me camp meeting from 2006 to 2010, you, you become family. 
So I know these people. They know me. So we all see each other every year. How you doing? What's going on? So 2010 camp meeting comes, and everybody's coming along. Sunday law crisis, near. Here's all the latest current events, latest facts, etc. No doubt, good stuff, good information. And then this one preacher comes up and disrupts the whole flow. This preacher comes up and gets on the pulpit. Tall, stout man. And he gets up there. He was a medical missionary, too. And he got up on that pulpit, and he said, I'm going to talk today about the subject of forgiveness. I remember exactly what was going through my mind. I said to my wife, honey, I said, you know, we just finished hearing about Sunday law, apostasies are building up in the church. We in trouble, trouble, trouble. Now this brother's coming up talking about forgiveness. What does that have to do with the finishing of the work? That's what I was thinking in my mind. Like, this, this is, in other words, this sermon is out of order. Even though I love the man who was preaching it. But I, I said, is this sermon is out of order. This is strange. But he does his whole sermon on forgiveness, right? He goes into his history about how his dad left him as a child, and he grew up with bitterness in his heart towards his dad. And he starts showing all these Bible verses about how if we don't forgive, we can't be forgiven. In other words, there's no victory over sin. And he starts going through all this stuff, and he gets through the end of the sermon, and he says, if there are any of you who have been harboring unforgiveness in your heart, one of my dear brothers pops out of that seat like popcorn, runs up to the pulpit, falls on the evangelist's chest, and weeps like a baby. By the way, this is a black man. Now, for those of you who are black, you understand what I'm saying. Black brothers like to always keep it together and hold their pride. There's a thing called black pride. And so this brother loses his black pride. He's, listen to my words, he's broken. He is weeping. And I'm not talking about, <laughs> no, that brother's like, <laughs> crying, tears pouring down his face, out of control, broken. I was like, hmm. Next thing you know, another man goes up. Another man, another man, another man, another man, another man, another man, another. There was almost 50 men that goes up on this pulpit. Big, gigantic group of men crying and weeping because they were harboring unforgiveness in their hearts. And I sat there, and it was like God had arrested my attention. God help me see, Dwayne, you all are talking victory over sin. We're talking about getting rid of bad music, getting rid of bad dress, entering into good worship, making sure that you do this right and do that right. And all of that was being done by a group of people who were still harboring unforgiveness in their hearts. They were on their way to hell and the second resurrection while they thought they were getting ready to be translated. God got my attention. And I said, Lord, there's something missing in the present truth circles. That was when God began to start opening my eyes. He began that process of opening my eyes. It is not that we negate the truths that we had, but I'm discovering we need to add on an emphasis to things that are not often added on in the context of present truth. My brothers and sisters, it is possible to knock on a man's door 
and say, hello, my name is, and give a truth-filled book like Great Controversy and still have demons in our heart. That's scary to me. Did you know it is possible to stand at this pulpit and give a powerful, straight truth message and have demons in your heart? But you don't understand, my brothers and sisters, that's scary. As a preacher, that thing makes me really search my heart. You talk about that Psalms 139, 23, 24, search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of last. God is serious, brothers and sisters. He's saying, listen, you think you're going to get in the kingdom and you're going to harbor that unforgiveness in your heart towards your brother? God says, what if I did that with you? Talking with a woman with high blood pressure and I'm talking to her and she has all these issues. I said, how long ago you had it? Ten years ago. What happened ten years ago? My husband left me for another woman. That's a terrible thing, isn't it? I said, sister, have you forgiven him? Absolutely not. I said, is that right? Yes. I said, okay, so um, this consultation's over. That's what I said to her. I said, this consultation's over. I said, I can't help you. She was like, what are you talking about? I said, sis, if you want to manage your disease, find the nearest clinic. If you want to be healed, only God does that. But God has a way that he does healing. And it begins with forgiveness. And if you won't forgive him, there's, I, there's nothing God can do for you. She says, but you don't understand what he did. He did. He did. You know, women have this incredible brain. They know how to record. It is a most incredible memory skill. They know how to jot down the date, the time, the color of the room, the temperature outside. I mean, they remember everything. He did this. It was on this date. It was like this outside. He was wearing these colors. I was wearing these colors. They, they got the details. Locked in. And here it is that she was going down the list, and I just said, Stop right there. I said, Do me a favor. And this is years ago. I said, Do me a favor. Write down everything he did that has offended you. She was like, That's easy because she's been harboring it in her heart. I said, Then I want you to write down everything that you've done to offend Jesus. And then all I want you to do is just take the papers and do the comparison. Who's the worst offender? She got the message. I said, are you the worst offender? Yes, I am. So what you want God to do with you? Have mercy on me. So then what should you do with the lesser offender? I mean, such a simple theology, right? She did it. She said, I don't know how to forgive. I said, let me show you how. We began to pray together, study together. Do you know that she forgave her husband? She let God take away. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world, including our unforgiveness. He took it away. She had peace. In three weeks, 116 over 75. That's simple, my brothers and sisters. What I'm saying to you is that there's a lot more power available than what we think. But the question is, does God have my heart? That's the question. Have I allowed him to have my heart? So I began looking at this. So what really is medical missionary work? Let's talk about it, okay? Let's, let's get into it. Let's, let's, let's study, all right. 
what is medical missionary work? If we were to look at it just from the plain definition of the term, right? The plain definition of the term, if we just did it from a dictionary standpoint, medical missionary is a healthcare professional. I had to highlight that one, made me laugh a little bit. A healthcare professional. It says physicians, nurses, EMTs, dentists, pre-med students, and more, who would go on missionary trips with durations lasting from one week to one year or more worldwide. That's a medical missionary. I'm so glad that's the world's definition. The testimony of Jesus says it a little differently. It says the work of the gospel ministry is not to decrease in efficiency, but is to increase until it becomes the great enlightening agency in our world. That's almost Revelation 18 language. It says everything possible should be done to send more laborers into the field. No influence should be exerted to turn young men aside from qualifying themselves for ministerial missionary work. Okay, now watch this. To this, we may attach the word what? Medical. For it is essential that the gospel minister, the who? Now that has nothing to do with healthcare professional. You understand that? It says the gospel minister shall have a knowledge of disease and its causes. It says he should know how to give help to the sick. He should be able to teach the people how to treat the house we live in. This is a part of the gospel. You understand that? So when we think about medical missionary work, it is literally ministerial missionary laborers that also know how to minister to disease and sickness to humanity. Okay? That's what medical missionary work is. It's ministering to the whole person. In fact, how about we take a look at the master medical missionary's focus? The master medical missionary's focus was none other than Jesus. Is that right? Look at the words of Jesus himself and others. Notice what the Bible says. In Matthew 1 and verse 21, it says, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name what? Jesus, for he shall do what? Save his people from their sin. You see, in Christ revealing the Father, he made more plain the way of salvation back to the Father. You understand that? All right. Going on, it says in John 12 and verse 47, And if any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Very good. Then we have Matthew 9, verse 6. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. The whole purpose of Christ doing that healing work was to make it known that he has power to forgive people of their sins. You understand that? Then we have Luke 19 and verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Christ's focus in his medical missionary work was to bring salvation to lost humanity. Is that right? So then if I am to be a medical missionary, I need to understand that the work of the true medical missionary is largely a spiritual work, which means that we must be more spiritual people. We need more of the mind of God. God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. If I'm truly going to be a medical missionary, then I need to understand that I must have a strong, not weak, spiritual foundation. It has to be strong, because I don't know if you understand that many a times what we call sickness is many a times demonic affliction, which means that when we deal with sick people, we're going to be dealing a lot with demons. 
And you do not want to go into war with a demon if you are not spiritually built up. You understand that? So this is imperative because, again, a lot of times we assume that medical missionary work is learning about the right poultices, the right hydro treatments, and the right dietary regimens, etc., which is all-inclusive. But my brothers and sisters, if you and I are not submitted to God, if our lives are not lives that reflect the power of his spirit in us, we can end up like the sons of Sceva. In Acts chapter 19, when the Bible says they went to tell that demon, come out of them in the name of Paul and Jesus, and that demon said, listen, Paul I know, Jesus I know, but I don't know you. And God was still merciful to those vagabonds. God was merciful to them because they could have died. Yes, they left the house naked, beat up, and embarrassed, but thank the, thank the Lord they could redeem the time. You understand that? I mean, I, I praise God. I saw his mercy in Acts 19. Those brothers could have died. There was a man by the name of Moses Hull. Moses Hull was one of the state of the dead champions in Adventism. And Moses Hull would know how to battle with spiritists especially. But Moses Hull started to disregard that blessed spirit of prophecy. Started to go ahead and turn away from these things. Ellen White gave warning after warning. Elder Hull got a little caught up in himself. And one day Elder Hall went to meet with a spiritist. He was warned, don't go in there. You're not ready for this battle. He thought, I got intellectual truth. You see, Desire of Ages, page 209, we're told the great mistake of the Pharisees is that they thought that an intellectual assent to the truth constituted righteousness. Great mistake of the Pharisees. Great mistake of Seventh-day Adventists today. And so it is that Elder Hull thinks, I got this. I know everywhere in the Bible that it deals with the state of the dead and all these other things. And he went in to battle that spiritist, and he left a spiritist. And died outside of the third angel's message. These things are recorded in history that we might learn from it, Romans tells us. And my brothers and sisters, we got to pay attention to these things. We must remember that true, she put that there. I love how Elder Fever said it. She doesn't put these words there for no reason. She's straight to the point, and she gives the proper emphasis because she's under the inspiration of Jesus. The work of the true, meaning there are false medical missionaries. But the work of the true medical missionary is largely a spiritual work. We must be a spiritual people. Did you know what the Bible says about spiritual people? Go to Galatians 6. If you look at Galatians 6, you can see what the Bible says even about spiritual people. And I want you to think about it, because if we're not what we read in Galatians 6, then we can't accomplish the work. Look at what it says in Galatians. We're looking at the sixth chapter, and watch what the text says as we consider Galatians 6 right there in verse 1. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are what? Spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Do you see that? The assumption that Paul is making is that the only ones who can truly restore their brethren are those who are spiritual. You understand that? And God is a spirit, and they that worship him worship him in spirit and in truth. We must have the mind of God when we approach faulting, erring brethren. And if we don't have the mind of God, we will mess up even the quote-unquote redeeming work. 
And so it is, the true medical missionary is largely a spiritual work, the work of a true medical missionary. Now, we're told those who labor as Christ, the great medical missionary labored, must be what kind of minded? Spiritual minded. But not all who are doing medical missionary work are exalting God and what else? His truth. Not all are submitting to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This is what God is saying is a crisis even amongst his gospel medical missionary evangelists. And so if we truly are going to effectively do medical missionary work with power, we have to do it as Jesus did it. In other words, what's really the goal in medical missionary work? What's the goal? What are we seeking to accomplish? Look at how the Bible puts it. Number one, John 5 and verse 14, the medical missionary, look at what he says. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made what? Thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Continuing, the Bible goes on to say in Matthew 9 and verse 22, it says, But Jesus turned him about, and when he saw her, he said, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made what? Whole from that hour. Then it says in Acts 4 and verse 10, Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you. How? Whole. In fact, I wonder what Jesus is coming back for. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 23, and the very God of peace sanctify you. How? Holy. Notice W-H-O-L-L-Y. This is not just talking about H-O-L-Y. But it says holy, completely, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved, how? Blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The goal of the medical missionary is to meet people in their present conditions and be an instrument in God's hands that people will be made whole. That means that we are not satisfied just because they came in with cancer and leave without cancer. We're not satisfied if they came in with Lyme disease and they leave without Lyme disease. The question is, am I an instrument that can help others to be made whole through the merits of Jesus Christ? That becomes the focus of the medical missionary because that was the focus of Jesus Christ. If I had to use one page in inspiration to describe medical missionary work, it is right here in Ministry of Healing, page 17. Here's what it says. It says, our Lord Jesus Christ came to this world as the what kind of servant? Unwearied servant of man's necessity. So notice that. He was one who met the necessities of man. Okay? Then it says, he took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses, that he might minister to what? Every need of humanity. Is there needs beyond mental, physical, spiritual? How about social? How about economic? How about domestic? How about academic? My brothers and sisters, there are many needs. Now, guess what? When it comes to social, when it comes to economic and domestic, do we have the Bible and do we have inspired books that can help in these areas? Yes, we do. So should we not be able to simplify these life problems? You understand that? So Jesus was able to minister to every need of humanity. You and I should be able to know how to minister to every need of humanity. Do you understand that? 
That's what God wanted us to understand. That's the work he laid before his gospel medical missionary evangelist. Continuing, it says the burden. Watch, watch the threefold problem and the threefold solution. The burden of disease and wretchedness and sin he came to remove. Did you know that that's our work? People who come burdened with disease, wretchedness, and sin. God says, that's the work that I've given to my medical missionary evangelist. That's the work that I've called them to do is to help these things be removed. Now watch. It was his mission to bring to men what? Complete restoration. How? He came to give them three things. What was it? Health and peace and perfection of character. Now, my brothers and sisters, do you see that this is the threefold solution to the threefold problem? Think about it. Man has the burden of disease. God came to give health. Man has the burden of wretchedness. God came to give peace. Man has the burden of sin. God came to give perfection of character. Literally, this is the message of the gospel medical missionary evangelist. This is what God wants us to be a channel that when people come here with the burden of disease, wretchedness, and sin, that we can be instruments in God's hands to bring to them health, peace, and perfection of character by coming in contact with the man Christ Jesus. This is the great work that God has set before us. So when somebody says, what is a medical missionary? My answer, according to inspiration, medical missionaries are ministers who meet the needs of humanity by bringing them to complete restoration, providing health, peace, and perfection of character. This is what God entitles medical missionary work. It is ministering to the whole person. Now, you heard me the other day. I talked about how a lot of times we as medical missionaries, sometimes because of the term and because of our focus in that term, we begin to limit what God wants to accomplish in us. And that's how many a times we can end up knowing more about herbs, knowing more about hydro than we understand the word of God. Think about it. God's word provides healing. Isn't it so? Notice what the Bible says. My son, attend to my what? Words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart. For they are life unto those that find them. And what else? Health to all their flesh. The words of God provide health. So what is it that medical missionaries should be astute in understanding? The word of God. The word of God. We should be able to understand the word. We should be clear on the word. We should, be, we should know how to study the word and how to lead others to the word. And a lot of times, unfortunately, it's strange. But it seems like for some reason, medical missionaries don't know the word as well as they could or should. And we almost think like, well, that belongs to the gospel worker. But that's the problem, family. Medical missionaries are gospel workers. You understand that? We don't drop the ball on gospel work because we have embraced, quote unquote, medical missionary work. How in the world are you going to help people overcome the burden of wretchedness and sin if you cannot provide them with the word? And as I stated yesterday, you will not know the word as well as you could or should if you allow preachers to replace your personal devotion. You gotta learn how to turn YouTube off sometimes. 
You got to learn how to cut audio verse off sometimes, family. You got to learn how to cut 3ABN off, and you got to learn how to open up your Bible. And you know what? Don't leave the verse until you understand it. Tax your mind. Push yourself. Because we got to get to that place that we really understand this book because there's a great famine in the land for the word of God. This is why one of the first things I want to encourage to all of us as gospel medical missionary evangelists, I often think about how much we know how to quote spirit of prophecy and all these things. And that's good, family. Listen, that's good when, you, when your ministry is talking to a bunch of SDAs. But I don't read anything in Revelation 14 where John says, and I saw another angel fly in the seven-day Adventist church. Sing unto them in the seven-day Adventist church. Fear God and give glory to him. For the hour of his... I, I don't read that. I read it was every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. We got to go to Pentecostals. We got to go to Baptists. We got to go to all these different family members. That's right. We got to go everywhere, and we have to help them see on these points, you've been right with God, but on these points, these areas are wrong with God. And we are here to help you how to turn wrong to right. We have to know how to do that, but you can't quote Ellen White. You can't quote that. You cannot do that, family. And that's why I asked you the other day, I said, how many of you can prove dress reform with the Bible? Because dress reform is desperately needed. Desperately needed. A lot of people come to these schools and they just cooperate. They don't get the lesson. I've seen it all the time. They come to these schools and they wear their long flowing skirts and everything else. And as soon as they graduate from the schools, back on with my tight pants and all this other stuff. And it's like, see, you missed the lesson. You, didn't you were just cooperating with an organization. That's not what God was trying to accomplish. So if you're going to take off your pants and put on your skirt, you should know biblically why you're doing that. If as a brother, you're going to go ahead and say, it's not a time for me to reveal all my muscles and this, that, and the other. I'm going to button up and I'm going to dress like a decent man. I'm going to keep myself well-groomed, etc. I'm not doing it because of what Second Selected Messages says. I'm doing it because thus saith the Lord. You got to know that. And you got to know how to articulate that to others. Therefore, I believe that if we're truly going to enter into faithful, true, spiritual, gospel medical missionary work, we need to understand how to study the Bible. We got to know how to go through the text. You know, in my travels, uh, in my travels, when I go from country to country, state to state, I have found that a lot of people believe a lot of strange things. What was also interesting is the great grand majority of the people that believe strange things call themselves medical missionaries. And that's why I said, what's going on? Why is it that, why is it, that it seems, what, what is it in the atmosphere that causes a lot of us as medical missionaries to hold on to things sometimes that are just uh, a bit extreme, maybe erroneous or, or otherwise? In other words, there's confusion in the camp. What kind of confusion? This is typically what, this, this is just personally what I've run into, and then when I talk with other gospel workers, this is what they've run into with medical missionaries, quote unquote. Number one, uh, the anti-Trinitarian movement. You got a whole lot of people that are denying that the Holy Spirit is a person with a personality. And they go hard at this to try to do that. And I have seen articles, I marvel. I used to do gymnastics, but boy, you could see Bible gymnastics. The way that they just cut and paste all these verses and so on and try to tell us that the Holy Spirit is not a person and he's not a third, he's a this and that and the other. I thought to myself, I, said, I remember I was talking with one anti-Trinitarian. And they went big, he, you know, the Holy Spirit, there's no third person. And I said, I said, do you believe in the three angels' messages? They said, yes. 
I said, okay, because they were trying to give me Ellen White quotes. So I, I, I met them where they were. I gave an Ellen White quote back. Do you believe in the three angels' messages? I'm asking you that. Where in the Bible do you have three angels' messages? Where, where do you see the three angels' messages? You see it in Revelation. Where in Revelation 14 is the three angels' messages? Six through 12? Where does it say three angels' messages in there? It says the first angel, second angel. You sure about that? I never read that. Yeah, John the Revelator says in verse 6, and I saw another angel. So how do you know there's three angels? How do you know? I'm, I'm asking a question to a group of medical missionaries. Talk to me, family. I'm going to be honest with you. I expect you to answer me a little bit fast. You're holding up my, 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 my message here. What's going on? Come on. How do, you, how do you know there's three angels' messages in Revelation 14? Thank you. Verse 9 says, and the third angel said with a loud voice. So if that's third angel, that means verse 8 must be second angel. That means verse 7 must be first angel. So that term third is what helps me say three. You get that? So then when I went to evangelism 615, 616, and Ellen White says the third person of the Godhead. I said, that's the same principle. If there's a third person, there must be a second person. And there must be a first person. That is what's called sanctified reasoning. You understand that? They, and then I said, now how do you answer? Well, you have to understand the word person. I said, just remember this. Whatever you explain the word person to mean, it doesn't apply to just the third. It applies to the second and the first. You're just blind. You're just, the probation closed. And then they start casting me into hell. And that's what I'm saying. People need to think through scripture. God wants his medical missionaries to think through scripture. Not just look at data that's just in your face, but think through the text. Study through the text. The Bible says, consider what has been set before you. This is one of several things. Anti-Trinitarian, 2520, the 2400-day prophecy. Coming to an apostasy near you. The SDA church is Babylon. Fanaticism in dress, diet, and lifestyle. How about this one? The flat earth doctrine. I say to myself, people have too much time on their hands. Brother Fiedler, they are not getting in the field. That's why we're coming up with a lot of this stuff. Forensic justification, a justification that's purely declared but not experienced in the life. Devilish doctrine taught by prominent preachers. No victory over sin. Prosperity preaching. Hey, black and white conferences. How do you read the Bible and come up with that nonsense? You can't come up with that kind of stuff if you're reading the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy faithfully. If you know how to study the Bible, my brother, you won't come up with this stuff. God makes these things clear. This is what's happening, and it's creating a ton of confusion in the camp, and this is just scratching the iceberg. People got to know how to study their Bibles. Because after we look at this, are these all not real agitations happening in the movement? And they're happening from the precious truth camps as well as the present truth camps. People got to know how to study their Bibles. We got to get back to Bible study. And that's the reason why I give you this wonderful tidbit. It's beautiful. The study of the Bible. Look, if you can just take this gem 
when we're talking about how to study the Bible, you will find that your Bible studies will get so much more beautiful, sweet, and deeper. The study of the Bible demands our most diligent effort and persevering thought. As the miner digs for the golden treasure in the earth, so earnestly, persistently, must we seek for the treasure of God's word. Continuing. In daily study, the what method? The verse-by-verse method is often most helpful. The verse-by-verse method. What is that? Continuing. Let the student take one verse and concentrate the mind on ascertaining the thought that God has put into that verse for him. Then, and then dwell upon the thought until it becomes his own. One passage thus studied until its significance is clear is of more value than the perusal of many chapters with no definite purpose in view and no positive instruction gained. My brothers and sisters, that's how you want to study. Go verse by verse. Explain it and make it plain. And let me give you a little practicum. Is it all right if I give you a practicum? Oh, I love doing this with the saints. I'm sure there's got to be a scholar in here that's going to make this plain. Go to Galatians chapter 2. Let's watch a little Bible test. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 2, and I want you to watch this, and I want you to remember what we just read from the book Education, page 189, paragraphs 3 and 4. I want you to watch this. In Galatians chapter 2, watch what the Bible says in verse 16, and pay close attention to it, please. The Bible says in Galatians 2 and verse 16, when you get there, please say amen. amen. All right? It says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall how much flesh? No flesh be justified. What is that text telling us? Don't be timid, family. What is the text telling us? Right, correct. Okay, very good. But what is that faith of Jesus doing or making plain to us in the verse? What's the verse telling us? It's repeated like a few times in the verse. What's the verse telling us? We're justified by faith, forgiveness of sins. This is true. The, the verse is making a very plain statement, especially if you understand the book of Galatians. Paul is trying to make a very clear point because there was a very clear issue. What is Paul trying to teach in verse 16, family? Say again. There is no work, obedience, or doing of the law of God that can make you or make me justified. Would you agree that that's what the verse is trying to tell us? That's what he's trying to tell us. That's his message. Okay, that's his message. We're only justified by the faith of Jesus, but not by the works of the law. Obviously, there was an issue in the church of Galatia where people were trying to say, by obedience to the law of God, you can be made right with God. So Paul wants to crush that theory. And he says, listen, there are no works. That's why he repeats it several times. Didn't you see him repeat it in the verse? Okay, so is it clear there's no work doing, obeying of the law of God that can make us justified before God? Do you agree with that? All right, go to Romans 2. Of literally 1,700 missionaries, only one got it right the first time. Romans chapter 2. 
Romans chapter 2. Now we just, con- by the way, who wrote Galatians? Who's the author? Paul. Who's the author of Romans? All right, so Paul is not double-minded. But let's notice what the Bible says in Romans 2. If you're there, say amen. amen. Romans 2, verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be... Wait a minute. Hold up. If you ever leave the present truth bubble and come in contact with people who don't believe anything closely to what we believe, they're going to say to you, it looks to me like Galatians 2.16 and Romans 2.13 are a contradiction. Because Galatians 2.16 made it clear. There's no work of the law that we can do that makes us justified. But now Romans 2.13 says the doers of the law shall be, future tense statement, shall be justified. I got to do the law first and then I'm justified. That's the language of it according to just plain grammar. As a question was asked to Martin Luther, how do you answer? Verse 12 may not necessarily answer it, but if you want to try it, you can. I'm, I've, I've designated two minutes to give you to let you go ahead and make an attempt. How, yes, my brother. The first is talking about justification. The other is sanctification. I see the word justified. Somebody says in verse 13 of Romans 2, it says justified, not sanctified. I have verses in the Bible that specify sanctified, so the Bible does not have an issue with the term sanctification or sanctified. But in Romans 2.13, it says justified. It says it. Justification is sanctification? One is talking about justification. The other one is talking about sanctification. But somebody may say back to us, which they have a right to say, both verses are speaking about justification. Because it says justified. So do I, do I by faith do the law first? If I do the law by faith, is it then I'm justified? Or am I justified before I even do the law by faith? Family, this is the third angel's message. Could it be that the very present truth for this hour we don't fully understand? I'm just saying. You see, we're all smart until we're asked a question. Listen to what I'm saying. This, this is very true. This is good lessons for us to learn. As long as we're talking, we are geniuses. It is when we're quiet and somebody says, okay, based on what you said, boom. And then they ask you a question. Now we're going to reveal how much of good or bad students of the Bible we are. You understand that? So this becomes seriously important. This is a fundamental question. Now I'll say this in advance. Did you know that Seventh-day Adventists should be the masters at explaining Romans 2.13? If you really understand what Romans 2.13 is talking about, SDA should be able to explain it blindfolded. Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Philippians 2.13. Because, yeah, that's Galatians 2.20, what, what you were just saying there. So, Philippians 2.13 
is, is, for it is God which worketh in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's fine. But the question is, God is working in me to do the law before I'm justified or after? So it's after. So it's after then. So then Paul says, the doers of the law shall be justified. That's a future tense statement. That's, no, this is talking about being justified first and foremost. Well, that's just not what the verse is saying. I understand the explanation you're giving, but that's not necessarily what the verse is saying. That's all I'm saying. It's not what the verse is saying. All right, this is our last hand. Yes, sister. So again, the person asked the question, so I, do I have to do the law first and then I'm justified? See, we haven't answered that question yet. This, this is my point. Meditate on these things. Now, here's the deal. I know I think what you all are going to be doing during lunch now. You're going to be thinking about a text. Don't do it while you're eating. You mess up your digestion. But do it after sometime. The point is this, family. Sometimes when we say things, we have a tendency in our human nature to be like, yeah, yeah, I know this. I got that. But it's, again, it's when a question is thrown at us that forces you to think. That's when we start discovering how little or great we know. And that's the point, is that I want to encourage us to follow what the council just said. If we follow the council of the verse-by-verse method, you will explain very beautifully and very clearly what Paul is talking about in Romans 2 versus what he's not talking about. Because people have a right to know, am I justified by doing works or am I justified by not doing works? Because it looks like there's a contradiction, hence why the atheists say, I don't want to hear what you Bible people people are talking about. I don't want to hear it. We are called to make it plain. Do you understand that? So this is why the more we know how to study the Bible, and again, this is one of the most powerful methods. It's not the only, but it's definitely powerful, verse by verse. Now, what we're asking in Romans 2 can be answered if you faithfully study verse by verse and, remember, concentrate the mind on ascertaining the thought that's been put in that verse. If you do what we're being counseled, you will see the result come up without a problem. But you got to read prayerfully and carefully. Now, this is what Jesus, the master medical missionary, did. That's why no matter how much the devil tried to trip him up by presenting promises, Jesus would say, yes, it is written. But Jesus would go ahead and balance out whenever Satan was getting fanatical with the word. Christ was a master at explaining scripture. Medical missionaries should be masters at explaining scripture. We should know how to walk through the text. We should know how to do this. This has been my prayer. Can I let you in on one little tidbit about me personally? This is something that I've tried, and and I'm, I'm nowhere near satisfied in this, but I've tried to do this. Every belief that I have, that I have found from the writings of Ellen White, I look for where it is in the Bible. In other words, don't get comfortable just saying, the servant of the Lord says, blah, 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 blah. What I would encourage you to do is when she teaches all those blessed principles, we know that the writings of the Spirit, what makes us different from Mormons is the Mormon church believes that the Book of Mormon, so-called, supposedly given by the angel Moroni, gave the Book of Mormons to complete the Bible. That is a teaching in the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. That's why, no matter how much you show them clearly from the Bible about the law of God, they quote back to you the Book of Mormons. You understand that? 
they hold it as a very high-level authoritative book, even above the Bible. We are Seventh-day Adventists. We don't believe that. We believe the writings of Ellen White did not complete the Bible. We believe the Bible's already complete. We believe that God's people just need bifocals. Bifocals are double lenses. You understand that? We already have the lens of God's word to study, but some of us have become so blindsided by what God's words were saying, God gave an additional lens to magnify what the word was already saying. So knowing that principle, that the writings of Ellen White is a magnification of what the Bible was already saying, then I'm asking God, train my mind that I can see it from the first lens because I have a lot of people that don't have respect for your prophet and they need to be reached. And so I have sought over the years, by the grace of God, to find out where all these principles in Ellen White's writings, where are they in the Bible? I can encourage you, family. If you learn to do that, you will be more useful. You'll just simply be more useful because we're not called to just preach to SDAs. Contrary to many popular opinions, I don't see that in the Bible. And I marvel how people can quote Ellen White to say that we should be preaching to SDAs when Ellen White did not preach to only SDAs. I, I don't even understand that. That makes no sense to me. So the key is, is that we have to know how to study the Bible. We have to look at the verses. We have to think through the text and don't move until you understand it. Because it makes no sense to peruse a whole bunch of chapters with no definite purpose in view and no positive instruction gain. It does not benefit us. Now, in addition to this, in medical missionary work, listen, family, there's another reason for knowing the word. Another reason, especially in medical missionary work. Not only because we're going to come in, can, doctrine mess, can false doctrine mess up the mind? Can false doctrine bring on sickness? Yes. You ever had somebody paint a doctrinal view of God as an evil taskmaster, always ready to destroy? Do you think that that can put somebody in a depressed state? Do you think presenting the truth of God's love and compassion and mercy and his forbearance and long suffering, do you think that that could probably free somebody's mind up, that it can actually have an effect on the body and help those endothelial cells go into hyper-level action and actually help them feel better? Yes. Now watch this. Satan is the originator of disease. Satan is the originator of disease. Councils on Health 324, paragraph 2. Sickness of the mind prevails everywhere. Nine-tenths of the diseases from which men suffer have their foundation here. That means 90% of diseases are birthed where? In the mind. That's how serious it is. So if there's anything the medical missionary should know how to deal with is the mind more than the body. Because we are a people that ascertain, you're supposed to finish that word. We ascertain what? Cause. If somebody's sick because of what's going on in their mind, then you can give all the poultices and everything else you want. If you don't address the condition of the mind, you're putting a Band-Aid on a gushing wound. You understand that? So as gospel medical missionary evangelists, we should know how to deal with minds. Thank God we have something called mind, character, and personality, book one and book two. God has given to us what humanity needs. And so it says, nine-tenths of the diseases from, men, from which men suffer have their foundation here. 
Perhaps some living home trouble is like a canker eating to the very soul and weakening the life forces. Remorse for sin. Do you know how many people come to us with that? They're sick because of remorse for sin. Creates a depression, okay? Has an effect on the immune system. Now watch this. It says remorse for sin sometimes undermines the constitution and unbalances the mind. There are erroneous doctrines also. Look at that. Erroneous doctrines can play a role in making people sick. And that's why true medical missionaries need to have a thorough understanding of the Bible to bring people to truth. You understand that? So look at what it says. There are erroneous doctrines also as that of an eternally burning hell and the endless torment of the wicked that by giving exaggerated and distorted views of the character of God have produced the same result upon sensitive minds. Can you imagine that? It says infidels have made the most of these unfortunate cases attributing insanity to religion. Literally, people who get so depressed because they see God as a cruel taskmaster that it begins making them sick and like they're losing their mind. Infidels, heathens, begin to say, you see that? That's what religion does to people. It makes you crazy. That's what she's saying. She says infidels attribute insanity to religion. But this is a gross libel and one which they will not be pleased to meet by and by. The religion of Christ, so far from being the cause of insanity, is one of its most effectual remedies. For it is a potent soother of the nerves. Can you imagine true doctrine, faithful understanding of the Bible, knowing how when somebody gives you a text and says, no, 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 the Bible says that this is how God is. And we can say, no, let's just go up a few verses. Let's just look at a few verses below. Let's really understand what God is saying. If you could walk them through that, it can literally take away the dark spell, free the mind, soothe the nerves, and have a medicinal effect on the body like we just read in Proverbs 40. This is what God is trying to say. That's why the Bible says the Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary, my brothers and sisters. you got to know the word. As gospel medical missionary evangelists, we have to know the word so that when those people come, that we can give them the word and let it do what God does best. This is what God wants. My brothers and sisters, when you get up in the morning, don't rush your studies. Take time in the word. Go to Mark chapter 1. How about this? Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1, look at what it says in verse 35. Mark 1 and verse 35. Jesus, the hard worker. Hardworking man indeed. Hardworking gospel medical missionary evangelist. In Mark 1, notice what the Bible says in verse 35. Sabbath is over. It's sunset. It's nighttime. Whole village is coming out to be healed, and Jesus heals a whole lot of people. More than likely had a late night. But it says in verse 35, and in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and found and departed to a solitary place, and he there prayed. Jesus prioritized on his devotional time. He prioritized on his communion. Do you prioritize on your communion? Do you prioritize on your devotional time? You see, it's not enough just to have deep Bible study, but you've got to baptize it with communion with God. You've got to make sure that you take time to commune with heaven. 
I want you to watch this. This is so powerful. I want to talk a bit about the blessings of communion. You see, the first thing I want to talk about is the privilege of praise. How often do you spend time praising God? You see, sometimes we get so, uh, sometimes we get so afraid as good old present truth SDAs that we begin to think praise can possibly be Babylonian. And we begin to find ourselves in churches, and sometimes the most praise that God will get is a simple old amen. But God is worthy of praise. In fact, God really, watch how God deepens the first angel's message. You remember the first angel's message? And I saw another angel flying to Mr. Heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach unto them that dwell upon the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God, and do what? Give glory to him, right? For the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Now, often when we say fear God, give glory to him, when we break the verse down, often we talk about the glory of God and we use Exodus 33, 18 and 19, Exodus 34, 5 through 7, and we talk about how the glory of God is God's character. That is 100% true, but it's not the whole truth or at least we need to spread more of that understanding of that truth out. Why? Because the Bible says in Psalms 50 in verse 23, whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. You understand that? So everybody who's truly experiencing the first angel's message will be a people that spend time praising God because he's worthy. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. Some of the reasons why we go through the drama we go through, some of the reasons why many of us look like sad ventists is because we don't spend time in praising God at all and especially in our trials. The Bible makes it very clear that murmuring is sin. It's offensive to God. You read that in 1 Corinthians 10. People died because they were murmuring and complaining. Read 1 Corinthians 10, read right there 1 to 10. You literally will see it. People murmuring and complaining and God allowed the destroyer to come upon them. It's an insult. And so it is that, notice what inspiration says. It says, enter into his gates with what? Thanksgiving. And into his courts with? Praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with what? It seems like we give more attention to prayer and supplication. But it says, and with thanksgiving, it's a command. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Look at the council, family. Let us educate our hearts. What that means is that we're not used to this. Because if we were used to it, we wouldn't need education. You understand that? We need to be educated because it's foreign to us. Let us educate our hearts and lips to speak the praise of God for his matchless love. Let us educate our souls to be hopeful and to abide in the light shining from the cross of Calvary. Did you know that this is one of the best lessons you can give to a sick soul? When somebody's sick, but you know what the problem is? We often, this is why I said what I said earlier, family. We often give people the extent of our religion. You see, if you don't praise God, you more than likely are not going to encourage other people to praise God. That's why I told you, as you have received Christ, so walk ye in him. The problem is many of us receive Christ wrong, so we're producing a bunch of disciples like us. 
That's the crisis. That's why we got to receive the instruction. You can only give a man what you received. So if we don't spend time praising God, away with this, oh, I come from a conservative religion. That's nonsense. If you know who God is, he is worthy of praise. Period. I don't care if you're black or white. I don't care if you come from Europe or Africa. It does not matter. Now, praising God doesn't mean being wild, noisy, and disruptive. That's not what God is calling us to. The Lord is in his temple. We should learn to keep silent before him. There's a balance in this, my brothers and sisters. But some of us have become so stale and so stiff that we don't even know how to thank God in the midst of our trials. We label it black preaching and black worship and stupid stuff like that. My brothers and sisters, that's foolishness. It's not black. It's not white. I literally was counseling a couple in British Columbia, and they were white. And the husband was like, listen, sometimes when certain songs come on, he said, man, he says, I just thank God. I lift up my hands and just praise him. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. When's the last time you seen somebody do that at UG Pines? Or any organization. I'm not, I'm not here to pick on an organization. I'm just saying any quote-unquote conservative circle, we don't do that. Sometimes our hearts are touched to do that, but immediately our minds go off from God and onto the people, and we start saying, they'll think funny of me, so I'll hold it back in. Tell me I'm not being real. Come on, man. I know I'm being real. I already know this. What I'm saying is, is you got to learn how to say, I don't care what any of y'all think. I will not be disruptive, but at the same time, if it is appropriate for me to say, amen, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that, and I ain't nowhere near close to Babylon. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is, is that some of us have become so culturized that we don't even know how to do these things, and we give all these excuses for it. Let praise and thanksgiving be expressed in song. When tempted, instead of giving utterance to our feelings, let us by faith lift up a song of thanksgiving to God. Early writings 499. Song is a weapon that we can always use against discouragement. Ministry of Healing 254. To praise God in fullness and sincerity of heart is as much a duty as is prayer. Did you listen to that? No, you didn't hear that. Listen to this. To praise God in fullness and sincerity of heart is as much a duty as is prayer. It's a duty. Listen to this. We are to show to the world and to all the heavenly intelligences that we appreciate the wonderful love of God for fallen humanity and that we are expecting larger and yet larger blessings from his infinite fullness. That should be your life. That should be your life. We fell into a false form of worship. We think our quietness is something that is acceptable to God. And again, I'm not talking about being noisy. Please, because I'm a black man, I know if you're not black, you might misinterpret what I'm saying. Oh, he's trying to tell us to be all charismatic. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is sometimes we're too dead and too stiff. Sometimes we know that God is worthy of praise in the midst of some serious stuff that happened in our lives, stuff he delivered you from and everything else. And the best he gets, two seconds, 
Lord, we thank you for life, health, and strength. Now, Lord, be with us and give us this, give us that, give us this, give us that. And, and we, 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 we roll past praise. And again, God help us if we're going through crisis. God help us if we're going through crisis. Would praise even come out of our lips? Messages to Young People, page 117. You can write that down. In Messages to Young People, page 117, it says the trials of life are God's workmen. Revealing unto us the roughness and impurity of our own characters. In John 15, verses 1 and 2, Jesus says, I am the, bri- I am the vine, the father is uh, the husbandman, you are the branches. He says, every vine in me that bears no fruit, he says, I cast it away. He says, but every vine, a lot of times we miss these verses. He says, but every vine, every vine, every branch rather, every branch in me that bears fruit, he says, I purge. That means when you're doing good, he purges you. That's weird, because some of us say, if I'm doing good, why am I going through all the purging, Lord? God says the reason why is because I want you to bear more fruit. That's how the verse finishes. Herein is my father glorified. Same book and chapter, John 15, verse 8. Herein is how my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So shall you be my disciples. Literally, the Bible is saying, if you're going to give the loud cry, you definitely got to get some purging. Why? So you can bear a lot of fruit and light up the earth with my character. But how many of us praise God for the purging? We don't praise him for the purging. You understand that? We don't praise him for the purging. So we have to learn that in good times and even our bad times, we can say, praise the Lord. Thank you, Father, for allowing me to go through this because you're trying to teach me something. That's designed to draw me closer to your heart, help me see things about myself that I've never seen before so that I can let you be the Lamb of God that can take away my sins. Thank you, Lord, even for my crisis. It says, if more praising of God were engaged in now, hope and courage and faith would steadily increase. Prophets and Kings, 202. Praise the Lord even when you fall into darkness. Praise him even in temptation. Rejoice in the Lord always, says the apostle. And again, I say rejoice. Volume 2, page 593. Now, my brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus did. This is why he had so much power. You remember that in 1 John 2 and verse 6, he's our example. If any man abide in Christ, the Bible says, he himself also so to walk as Christ walked. Look at this. It says right here, the Savior's life on earth was a life of what? Communion with nature and with God. In this communion, he revealed for us the what? The secret of a life of power. Did you know that Jesus actually taught us how to get power. It was through his life of communion in nature with God. Now, I want you to watch this. I'm going to bring out these final points here. We'll let you out in about 10 more minutes. Watch this. Did you know that he taught us how to pray, and a lot of us missed it? Go to Luke 11. Let me see if you catch it. Luke 11. Let me see if you catch it. 
I'll be proud of you if you catch it. I'll be very thankful. Luke, the 11th chapter. I've learned I want to even pray like Jesus. I want to sing like him. I want to praise God like him. And I certainly want to pray like him. The Bible says in Luke, the 11th chapter, right? Starting at verse 1. If you're there, just say amen. amen. Now watch this. It says, and it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Now watch that. Christ was praying. His disciples see what's going on and hear what's going on. So now they ask him, Lord, teach us how to do it. So now Jesus teaches them how to do it. So here's what he says in verse 2. And our focus is just going to be on verse 2. Tell me if you caught it. It says, and he said unto them, when ye pray, say, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. They wanted, I'm coming, they wanted to learn how to pray. Jesus complied and is now teaching them how to pray. What lesson do we see in verse 2? Yes. Pray out loud. What makes you say that, sister? Okay. 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 I appreciate that thought. Thank you very much. I'm gonna let Brother Sandoval go ahead. Right. Very good. Thank you, Sister Almarie. Is what I'm gonna say hit the nail on the head, even though it's in agreement with both of the points you made. Look at what the verse said carefully. In verse 2, it says, and he said unto them, when ye pray, think. Is that what the verse said? Did he say, when ye pray, meditate? No. He said, when you pray, say. Meaning he was teaching them to pray aloud. You understand that? Same point. It's just that it would be good to reference from the verse. That's all I'm saying. All right. He taught them how to pray, and he taught them when you pray, say, speak out loud, okay? The goal is that when we go out in nature, God wants us to spend time with him in genuine communion. He wants us to pray aloud because when you read Steps to Christ, page 93, it talks about how God doesn't want us to just think about his goodness towards us. He wants us to say something to him. The goal is that the more that we speak to God out loud, the more real he becomes to us. That's an imperative. When you just pray thinking, number one, the mind wonders. Is that right? One minute you're talking to God, next minute you think about grocery shopping. Your mind wonders. But number two is sometimes God is still not real enough to us. But when you open your mouth and you start talking to God, you find that he becomes more real. I feel like I'm actually talking to someone. And it works with the mind to make God more real to us. That's why we're told very clearly in inspiration, the Bible says it. The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakeneth morning by morning. He wakeneth mine ear to hear as the learned. He wakes my ear to hear as the learn. 
I am letting God speak to me from his word. I am talking back to him. This should be our experience, and then we can better bring this experience to those that we minister to. This is the key. We can only give what we have received. You understand that? We can only give what we have received. If you haven't received it, you're not going to give it. Or you'll give it, and there'll be no power. You'll sound like a storyteller. God wants this to be our genuine experience. He says, I want you to come to my word, and I want you to study like you never have before. Become acquainted with what I'm teaching and who I am. Then I want you to spend time in communion with me. This is the secret of a life of power, family. This is what empowers your work. That's why I love what God is doing between even the three speakers because it, it, everybody is giving the key relevant points, but we're touching on different points at the same time. That's all complementary. The key is, is yes, we have to work, brothers and sisters. We got to work. We got to get to work. But remember, whatever work you do, you're bringing your experience into that work. So you need to make sure you have the right experience. So then that is what gets duplicated in the work that we're doing to touch the lives of others. Does that make sense? Amen. Tomorrow, we'll come back to it. We're going to talk about personal evangelism. And the reason why we're going to talk about this is because sometimes we begin to think that because I take care of vehicles, because I take care of the farm, or because I help put together herbs and different things inside of the, the organization, sometimes we think because we're working for a gospel organization, that relieves me from personal evangelism. That is a deception. We need to be involved in personal evangelism. You got to take time from the farm. You got to take time from the yard. You got to take time even from putting together all the right remedies. You got to take time that you go in somebody's house and impart to them the word of God. And you will find that God is going to do something special. I believe with all of my heart. When we start having real genuine communion with God, studying as he taught us to study, pray as he taught us to pray, we'll be able to do true medical missionary work to bring to people health, peace, and perfection of character. It's a great work that God wants to accomplish. The question is how many of us are willing to cooperate with God while he does it? Amen? Amen. And with that being said, let's go to our knees and let's have a word of prayer on that. Father in heaven, thank you again for helping us to see the importance of heart reform as we prepare to give the great message of health reform combined with the third angel's message. I pray that we might enter into an experience with the very truths that we teach to so many and that we cease to be messengers without a message. Lord, help us that we might be firm in knowing God in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And I believe that as we know you, we'll love you. And as we love you, it's easier to share that love with others. Please, Lord, do something special in our heart and help us that we might be efficient workers for thee. This is our prayer that we do ask. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.